0: When I was a kid, um, I actually wanted to be Spider-Man when I grew up, which is uh, not the most plausible. And uh, now I'm a beverage director and beverage consultant for restaurants uh, here in LA and uh, wherever else people want to hire me.
1: Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. Hey, it's Ben. Just a heads up that this episode was recorded before LA County's Department of Health announced that it would suspend outdoor dining until December 16th. In this conversation, you'll hear Gracias Madre beverage director, Max Reese, mention the beautiful patio that they have, which will become available again once the LA County Department of Health allows restaurants to resume outdoor dining. In the meantime, if you are able, I encourage you to support restaurants like Gracias Madre with takeout and delivery orders. All of Gracias Madre's cocktails are available for takeout and delivery, and I can assure you from having tried them myself, that a can of the Purista, which is their signature margarita, tastes great, even out of a can. It's awesome. And it was super easy. You can order it on any of the delivery platforms and it'll show up right to your door. Hope you're all staying safe and enjoy the episode. My guest today is Maxwell Reese. Max is the beverage director at Gracias Madre, which has locations in West Hollywood and Newport Beach. Max fell in love with agave spirits during his 10 years spent working behind L.A. bars and solidified that love by taking every opportunity to experience mezcal and tequila's production firsthand. When he's not in Oaxaca filling water bottles full of mezcal, he's in Los Angeles preaching ethical agave practices and making some of the best cocktails in the city. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Max. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. I'm a big Gracias Madre fan. Anybody who's in L.A., I feel like if you're if you're remotely interested in food at all in LA, you've either heard of or have spent many meals at uh, Gracias Madre. So it's a real treat to have you on. And I'm, I'm personally curious, you know, as beverage director, walk me through your process when it comes to vetting which beverages make it on the menu and what you have in mind when you're coming up with uh, cocktails
0: for the restaurant. Uh, you know, I... That's kind of evolved a lot as time has gone on, you know, as uh, I'd say anybody that is um, constantly engaging in their field, you know, would take it, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, when I first came on, I would say I had uh, too many ideas and I was very eager to impress. So uh, I would try to cram as many of those ideas into this program as I could. Uh, But as time has gone on and I've realized that you don't have to use all of your ideas in a single avenue, you need to actually slow down and cater to what the restaurant and the program needs. Um, I've found, you know, things changing, you know, it's not as much the the Mac show anymore as much as it is if I walked into Gracias Madre, what cocktails would I want to see on the menu, Um, which of course need to appeal both to our clientele and to cocktail nerds like me. So it's really become... A uh, process, and then not only just to sell cocktails, but to engage our clientele to try new things, especially in the category of things like mescal which are uh, a new concept for a lot of people. So I'm a bit of a, I've become more of a tour guide, which I, uh, yeah,
1: right. And I feel like, as you're mentioning, you were you were kind of honing in, as you were honing in on what cocktails and what beverages to include you were thinking kind of what feels right for Gracias Madre in particular. I'm wondering, mm-hmm. is, there, is there a decent amount of collaboration that happens between you and the chefs and deciding, oh, okay, this, this feels right um, you know, for our restaurant as opposed to this is an awesome cocktail, but but maybe this, this, uh, this isn't the right time or the right space necessarily.
0: Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't really say that. Um, we've had a couple of different chefs that I've worked with while at Gracias Madre. And I've been there the whole time. So, you know, I've um, I definitely work with seasonal produce in the kitchen and of course, uh, get feedback from from everybody in the restaurant. You know, I don't try to approach it with an ego. I want the servers like selling what they're selling. And uh, of course, with the chef, I uh, taste him on the cocktails, make sure he likes them. But at the end of the day, um, I am subject to what's in the kitchen a lot of the time. So, yes, there is a collaboration in that sense. Uh, Fresh seasonal produce makes amazing cocktails. But I'd kind of say that my collaborations, as far as the tone, have come more from my visits down to Mexico and kind of what I've decided um, I'd like to convey and bring back from those experiences to our guests, which is uh, so that that's kind of the ultimate collaboration, which is collaboration of the culture that we're uh, representing and, you know, monetizing.
1: Absolutely. And you're originally from Napa, which one might have suspected might lead you down a totally different, more wine-specific path, but you have found yourself gravitating more to Oaxaca. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I grew up, I'm sorry, my cats. Come on, on, buddy. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, I grew up in Napa. Neither of my parents are big drinkers. Um, Growing up around vineyards was really nice, but um, it wasn't really what I was, you know, I mean, I was also a young kid, so, I mean, I grew up with aspects of that in my life, but I wasn't drinking wine at, you know, 15 years old and whatnot, or at least not that my parents knew about, but, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, um, I moved to Los Angeles to go to art school and then ended up uh, joining a, a death metal band that I ended up touring with and pursuing music, um, which was really fun. Um, Cause you know, when you're young, any mild success seems so exciting. And uh, even though I had a big plan for myself, feeling success, doing something fun. Um, I just followed that. And eventually I wound up working in restaurants because I figured out that that was where many of my bandmates would leave, uh, have to quit their jobs and come back in workplaces like you know, bookstores and Pizza Hut and whatnot. Um, I found that I can make really good money working at restaurants. And uh, here in LA, there's a lot of actors in restaurants. So it's more acceptable for people to get gigs that pull them away from work for weeks at a time and things like that. Started doing that. Um, I'd already worked in restaurants in Napa growing up because those were also available uh, gigs. And um, yeah, so eventually I'm I'm a creative guy. I really like being creative. Um, If I'm not constantly being engaged, I get bored very quickly. And once I get bored, I kind of move on. Um, So um, I kind of got obsessive over aspects of the restaurant industry, uh, which eventually led me down the path of, well, I love cooking and I always have, but I didn't go to cooking school. I didn't grow up in a kitchen. Um, It's not, you know, it was, it's hard to be in a restaurant where you're surrounded by all these talents and go, Oh, I want to do that too. But I want to start years after you, you know, it's like playing piano as an adult versus being a kid that grew up playing piano. So very quickly I went, Oh, but bartending, like that's something that you can't start until you're my age, which was at the time I was almost 21. And, um, and that's something that you can get creative with quickly. And it's also something that's not as, uh, at the time it wasn't, it was becoming more advanced, but it wasn't quite there yet. So there's a lot of room for growth and a lot of room for excitement. So I started doing that worked in, uh, I, the day I turned 21, I got promoted to bartender after being a bar back for quite a while. And then, yeah, I just kept going, man. Um, just, uh, I started doing, uh, some wine lists for some restaurants. Um, none of them Napa wines. I'm actually not a big fan of uh, most, most <laughs> Napa wines, uh, hilariously enough, at least in that style um yeah so i just uh kept going kept uh bartending when i wasn't my band wasn't on tour and then eventually i went you know what i love doing this and that's where i want my focus to be so um i went to i wound up at uh gracias madre for a little bit as actually as a bartender um, not running the program and um i had already had a infatuation with agave spirits so Uh, Once I kind of got what I uh, was hoping to achieve out of Gracias Madre, I went to go work at Republique, which is um, LA's, like Los Angeles Times number one restaurant, really, really great working with uh, a mentor at the time named Sean Licklider, who is a vast knowledge of spirits and cocktails, working with him, um, and then started consulting on the side as well, um, which inevitably drew me back to Gracias Madre, where I started working on an all agave program, which is at the time I just had my interest peaked by agave and I was a cocktail specialist. And uh, years and years and years later of opportunities and research, I've become an agave specialist. And now I uh, focus mainly on Mescal, ethical sourcing, um, additive free agave spirits, you know, and really trying to guide the way that our culture perceives the spirit category and making sure that we preserve it with um, ethical consumption and supporting brands that deserve supporting. And- and, of course, supporting the people in Mexico that deserve our support as well. So 100%. it's a roundabout way to do it.
1: <laughs> and for, for someone like me who's enjoyed a great cocktail with agave but might not be as familiar with what ethical agave practices entail and what those kinds of producers look like, can you give us a little bit of background on what, what that world is like and, and how you've started incorporating ethical agave practices into Gracias Madre?
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so I think the biggest way to parallel it is kind of to talk about the difference between tequila and mezcal and knowing that tequila once started like mezcal did, you know. So uh, tequila is uh, it's kind of like the champagne of the agave world. It can only be made in a select region. Most people are familiar with Jalisco, uh, which is where most of it is made, although it can also be made in four different states. Uh, things like Naharit, and um, it can only be made using one kind of agave, and that's the that's the big part, which is that it's a Blue Weber Agave, which is a, an agave that is uh, grown relatively quickly comparatively to other agaves, um, typically in the, you know, six-ish year mark, uh, five to eight uh, more properly, and um, it's easily cultivated. So that is why agave spirits started with Blue Weber Agave, right? So. Uh, Obviously, as time has gone on, as I said, the plant takes a long time to grow, so it needs to be very efficiently produced. So as technology has been introduced, um, technology can be used really wonderfully, but for a spirit that traditionally was people roasting agave in a pit in their backyard, uh, fermenting it and then distilling it in like, you know, clay, clay pot stills to turn into this kind of machine that it has now where Americans consume millions and millions and millions of gallons of this every year of this plant that is finite, you know, it needs time to grow, it needs time to be cultivated, people start cheating it and they start cutting corners. So Mm -hmm. you start finding things like uh, new machines that uh, are very, you know, efficient at producing distillate, but at the same time produce uh, byproducts that um, you'd be, I would consider unethical in the Mm -hmm. system. Things like cheating, how long you need to wait for things to grow, um, using processes like chemical processing to help it cook faster, where you start adding more and more chemicals in it to disguise the uh, flavors that you would like to avoid in that sense. And um, basically a lot of the tequila on the market these days is made out of a plant that takes a long time to grow and should be very expressive, but instead it's made to taste like nothing very quickly. And then they use additives to regulate it and turn it into what we perceive as tequila today. Um, for example, I don't want to talk smack on any brands, but there's uh, a lot of different uh, tequilas on the market where they taste strongly of vanilla. And the thing is, is that agave doesn't taste like vanilla. So if you're, I mean, it can taste a little bit like it from barrel aging, but if you taste of tequila and it tastes strongly of vanilla, it's probably an additive. It's probably a chemical additive. And if it tastes sweet, honestly, sometimes they sweeten it. They use things like glycerin to provide mouthfeel. They use vanilla flavoring to make you think it's got you know, this robust flavor and unfortunately through those things it's just like the, the consumer doesn't understand that these things have these things in them you know very popular luxury brands use like tons of additives and people say hey i really need uh you know i love this tequila and i'm like nobody have that similar i'm like well nothing because that doesn't tastes like tequila you're drinking basically vodka with glycerin in it and vanilla flavoring and you're expecting it to taste like something else on um, this natural selection so uh so that's been really tricky and it's but it's been really fun teaching people how to navigate that and do it in a way that doesn't sham, shame brands but builds up brands that we support and uh you know celebrity tequila is a big thing too and uh i personally would rather funnel money down to a prestigious tequila family in mexico than i would to a white dude monetizing that culture and doing it pretty name, uh, just using his name on it and probably has very minimal involvement. So things like that. Um, Also, you know, Mezcal right now, you can, at least the Mezcal I like to drink, uh, you can trace it down to the family that's been making it for generations. And there's a direct connection there. It's, you know, often it's imported by somebody to United States, but the family that's been making this for four generations is still making it. Uh, There's not additives, it's just this beautiful culture that's still intact. It's a snapshot of a time and a place. It's a snapshot of like terroir and a family. It's someone telling you this story. And my goal is through education and teaching our clientele about how to respect that spirit category. We won't find it becoming what tequila has become, which is hard to navigate and uh, a bit immoral sometimes.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And it's interesting because I'm hearing a lot of similarities with what you mentioned with agave and what has happened in wine. So a lot of big producers that a lot of my friends and I might be familiar with, but uh, the, the way they make that wine, like I've heard Helen Johannesson over at Helen's Wines talk about uh, Whispering Angel as kind of, she refers to it as the McDonald's of wine, um, sure. where McDonald's yeah. is great. Like, you, sure, you like a Big Mac, but is it the best, most quality hamburger? No, not necessarily, um, because right. of certain practices that bigger, bigger places have. And so it's interesting to hear you say things that I've heard about in the wine world, but of course, they're happening with big producers in the agave space too. So, just for example, if, if somebody's listening to this and they're they're about to go to the liquor store to pick up a bottle, what are some things we can look for as we're perusing an aisle to make sure? Maybe we'll skip over the Casamigos as, and, and look for. Yeah. I'm, I'm hearing like a family, you know, a family-owned uh, uh, agave producer. Is that what are some, What are some things like that that we can look for that are that are signs of quality and ethical uh, practices?
0: You know, I a best way a really good way to navigate that is transparency if you look at the bottle and there's information on there surrendering it you don't have to do that people don't need to put information on the bottle you know what i mean and that's that's optional they need to put a few select pieces but if they have the family the gentleman who made its name on there that's big you know if they have details about how long it's roasted or the average age of the agaves or which field this is from or what lot it's from and you know the more details surrendered shows that there's less to hide, which is a great indicator of, I mean, it's transparency. You know what I mean? It's it's, you know, to go back to the McDonald's thing. You know, it's like it's okay if you like McDonald's. That's okay. Like it's okay, but it's not okay for you to come in to Spago and order a hamburger and then you get McDonald's. Like that's not okay, right? So right. Sh- there should be. T- there should be transparency as to what you are receiving. And the more information surrendered is often a really good indicator. Um, so with tequila, what's kind of fun is that there is, so basically in Europe, there is, you know, the DO like we were talking about wine, the denomination of origin, which is basically all these rules that if you want to call something, something, it has to fit these criteria and standards. So that was created in Europe during prohibition. So we haven't experienced that a lot here in the States. Like if you were to get, Whispering Angel or Mondavi private select or whatever, you know, saying that this is Mondavi's private select, that doesn't mean anything. That's just something that they can put on the bottle and it means nothing. This is marketing, right? So um, we have been kind of brainwashed by that here in the States, but in Mexico, they actually have the most intense DO uh, in the world, uh, more so than in Europe. Like every tequila distillery has a government employee that is employed there that certifies every batch of agave that comes in and every bit of tequila that goes out. So if they wanted to be transparent with that information, not only would you have to take their word for it, but you could actually get a government certification that is available for every single batch that goes out. Um, That being said, I've asked a million tequila producers for that, and you don't really get it, but uh, they're hesitant to give it to you. But um, what is cool is that there's an app. um, It's not a finite. I mean, it's not always completely reliable source of information, but uh, there's an app called Tequila Matchmaker where you can actually look up what's called the NOM. And what the NOM is, is that's a number that every tequila distillery has that's assigned to it by the government. And if you look up the NOM and you can see every single tequila that is produced in that facility and it has been produced in that facility. And what's really cool is that Tequila Matchmaker has done a really good job because you can click on it and you can see every practice done in that distillery. So you can see that one of the tequilas that's produced there uses um, a machine that you don't like or uses, you can see if it's cooked in an oven, you can see if it's cooked in an autoclave, you can see if it's cooked in a diffuser. Diffuser is the big one I like to avoid. Uh, That's like the most chemical induced processing that you could possibly get. Um, You can see that. You can see see how many times it's distilled. Um, And Tequila Matchmaker has done a really good job because they've actually compiled lists of the only additive free tequila. So you can actually look online and find that which is really cool. Um, But then once you start getting into Mezcal, it's a whole new ballgame. But one thing I'll say is that you're a lot safer with Mezcal than you are with tequila at this point. Uh, It's a lot less likely that you're gonna get something that's as adultered. Um, The things you have to look out for in Mezcal are just basically people buying a bunch of mescal taking away the kind of the history and blending it together into this kind of androgynous sludge that they put into Trader Joe's and slang around, you know. <laughs> um, but usually if you're getting mescal, it's probably already going to be a much higher quality than it would be with tequila because uh, there's much fewer brands that are using this kind of processing. But that's where I always go back to if you see the bottle acknowledging the person that made it and it's not as much of a brand as it is uh, a framing for it's an importer that's importing something that someone else makes and they're giving them credit and they're bringing it in to share with you. That's big, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's it really, you know, it's, it's, you know, this guy, the, the Ramos family and Miatlan made this and we're bringing it into you because they don't export it. That's uh, what you want to look for, you know?
1: Got it. So let's say somebody then is able to find a list <clears throat> of really good ethical agave producers. I think the average mm-hmm. diner has a general sense, for example, of like, what's a decent wine pairing. You know, mm-hmm. like if I'm having fish, I should have this kind of wine, whatever. But for agave, I feel like I, I can definitely say, I don't know. And I feel like my friends are less educated on like, are there, are there certain pairings that immediately come to mind for you? Like what are, as we get a little more advanced, what are some things we can think about so that when we do go into gracias madre or we're having a nice meal at our, at a friend's place, we can think like, oh, this would go really nice with this.
0: Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting question because you can do mezcal pairings. Um, you know, mezcal, like I was talking about earlier, um, so tequila can only be made out of one kind of plant, right, which is blue weber agave. Um, outside of that is subject to things like processing and, tar- you know, minerality and soils, different terroir-driven aspects that will change that flavor. But at the end of the day, it's, it's all basically Pinot Noir, right? So you're just drinking Pinot Noir. And so the thing is about mezcal is that it can be made out of any kind of agave, and it can be made anywhere in Mexico. Technically, the DO would argue with me on that, and they would say that there's not every state can call it that. But to me, if a producer has been making something for 500 years and they call it that, that's what it is. You know, So <laughs> you, can, you can go to Jalisco and you can get mezcal. The producers will call it mezcal, but it can't legally be exported as mezcal. So it wants to say mezcal in the bottle, but that's what that is. But anyway, so it's a much broader spectrum. And one thing I really like to look at is just kind of how these people enjoy it and what they enjoy it with. And the thing about mescal is they enjoy it all the time. It's very casually drinking. Um, it's a celebratory celebratory beverage. You know, it's not as focused around, oh, hey, like I'm having this food. I'm going to drink it with this. It's, hey, am I trying to be in a good mood right now? Hey, is, am I at a quinceanera? Am I at a party? Great. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time, that's kind of, I enjoy it too. You know, it's, I'm a mescal guy through and through. I drink it constantly. And if I'm going to come in and have a meal, I'll probably start off with, a cocktail or some mescal and a beer or something. And I'll probably drink wine with my meal. Then I'll probably end with mescal too. But the thing is, is that, you know, it's a really high intensity spirit. Um, traditionally, it would never be served below around 45% alcohol. So anything that is in the 40% range, which is what most Americans are exposed to, that's actually an Americanized version of mescal. It's an introductory version. So mm. it's really hot on your palate. You know, it's very distracting, it's big. Um, so I do think it goes really well with lots of things like Mexican flavors just because you have so many like sauces and these big powerful flavors that can kind of shine through. But that being said, um, there are some beautiful kinds of agave that can go really well with things like, um, and often it's, uh, when you talk to people in Mexico about mescaleros, they'll kind of pair it more with the mood, not, not as much Mm -hmm. the, the cuisine itself, but like how they're feeling. Um, for example, uh, if, um, Tempestate, is one of the oldest agaves that's made into mezcal. Um, it's being made as light as you know 15 years is the youngest of being seed harvested which is on the very young side and then the oldest it goes I guess, as old as 35 years before it's matured to be made into mezcal. So very old plant um, it grows alone uh, in the shady crags of cliffs and it's very large um, and every time I have one of these plants it tastes like floral and blue to me like very floral very blue like a lot of these these flavors and When I talked to a mescaler about it, I was like, When what's your favorite mescal? And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like I asked him what his favorite kid was. And he said, Well, sometimes when I'm lonely, I like to drink tepestate because the plant is lonely and I feel connected with it because it grows alone and for so long, you know? And I went, That is so freaking beautiful. That's really nice. But um Outside of that, I would say kind of like more regional differences. Uh, a really fun example actually is in uh, most people when they have mescal, um, they have Oaxaca mescal, which is traditionally served with orange slices on the side and usually some de champouline or sal de guisano. So salt with like chili and dried uh, worms or crickets in it, um, which is interesting. So you got to think about, you want this sweetness, right? To go with the mescal and that's usually because the roasted agave flavors are more earthy and you want a sweetness to balance out that earthiness, right? Where if you go over to Michoacan uh, or Guerrero, those mescals are very fruity tasting. You often get things like watermelon flavors, like green watermelon, like wow. a little bit of pyrazine, really cool, lots of dried chocolate. And uh, when you, when the first time I went to Michoacan, when I brought her to mezcal flight, they sat it down with three different kinds of aged cotija with fried hibiscus salt. So already, it's like, okay, the mezcals from Michoacan are typically gonna be fruitier. So they're gonna crave a pairing that is more on the savory side, like a cheese, you know, funky cheese. Whereas in, you're gonna have a sweeter pairing with Oaxacan mezcal. Or if you go to Jalisco, those, um, those mezcals to me are the most savory. They're very lactic, they're cheesy in themselves. So in that sense, you could kind of do a bit of a pairing with that. Like I would totally have a uh, mezcal from Jalisco, um, like extero amarillo or something. Um, which is a very unctuous, big, silky, um, like kind of caramely but cheesy mezcal. Like that to me would be great, like right before dessert or something. Like that's a great part in the meal for that. So he's got to approach it a little bit more conceptually, I, I guess. But yeah.
1: I like that. That that really feeds into into one's creative process. Like for example, right now you guys have a Day of the Dead special, right? The ofrenda mm-hmm. that you came up mm-hmm. with. So. So when you're, for example, coming up with a cocktail that's specific to a mood or a celebration like this one, for example, what's going through your head? What's your process like?
0: Uh, You know, I mean, for me, it's there's a balance because A, yes, like, I mean, truthfully, if you go down to parts of Mexico, like I've done bar pop-ups in Mexico. Uh, in Guadalajara, I went to this one, this beautiful bar called De Leo, and I showed up there and the staff showed up and I did like an agave train, I did not an agave training, a cocktail training. And they were all all these bartenders were looking at me so anxiously seeing what I was doing and I made them this cocktail and they went, uh, oh, this is great. What is it? And uh, I was like, oh, these ingredients and mescal. And I watched their mouth drop up and they go, you put mescal in a cocktail? Like what? Like they're like, we don't do that. Like that's kind of disrespectful. Like we drink it neat, you know, like we put tequila and rum mm. in the cocktails, you know? So a big part of that that stood out for me is like, you can't hide the mescal, like, you know, it's like, we're, Amer- we're Americans here, we really need, to, we, we're a cocktail-based culture, we invented the cocktail. We're going to do things that may not be, you know, uniform with other cultures' perceptions of what we're doing, but the thing that you do need to take away from that is that the plant takes so long to grow, and it's this thing that needs to be respected, and it needs to be the star, so... When I'm building a a mescal cocktail, I always try to make the mescal the star. And then I also kind of try to make it play with other flavors that it would normally be surrounded with because that's what's gonna let it kind of be more harmonious. You know, it's kind of like if they grow together, they go together. Um, So like for the ofrenda, um, I wanted to use seasonal produce. Um, So this cocktail is a little interesting. It's a total nerd cocktail. It's uh, force. it's like a clarified, force carbonated cocktail. Um, Very pandering to my uh, scientific approach nerdiness as far as my cocktail approach goes but um, I immediately thought of Day of the Dead and what kind of flavors you would associate with those things because so uh, first off marigold that's a big one Um, so marigolds are you know the flower of the dead you know they're uh, celebrations the blooming of life to balance the bitterness of death you know so I instantly I wanted to put marigolds into the mix and um, so I did so I did like a marigold liqueur that we used as part of the sweetener Uh, clarified tangerine which I just thought it was delicious and it goes really well in the skull uh and then i did so day of the dead um one cool thing about that is that day of the dead like moles and a lot of flavors there they it's a lot of burnt things so a day of the dead mole is a black mole where they burn everything the chilies are burnt uh they put burnt tortilla in there like uh, burnt chocolate everything is toasted and burnt uh like that you know what i mean it's the cremation so i immediately went okay so this this particular mezcal I used was Brujo Number no. 1, which is a smokier mezcal. Um, not all mezcal is smoky, by the way. That is a very, uh, that is a mis- that is a misconception due to marketing. Um, but they're all roasted underground, but depending on what kind of wood you would use to roast it and the size of how much you're putting in there in the roast and how small you're chopping them down, more surface area, you can control how much smoke is in there. Like tequila used to be made in the same way and it was very low smoke. Um, but this particular one I wanted to be smoky. So we played with a smokier mescal that would shine through and kind of represent that kind of death and rebirth of Day of the Dead. And then we also made a bitters out of a Day of the Dead mole that we put in there, which is really, really nice. Um, And I keep saying clarified. And the reason we did that, we spun out all the matter and tangerine in a centrifuge, uh, because so it doesn't have any physical matter in it. So we can carbonate it because uh, you can't carbonate something that has viscosity to it because the bubbles will struggle and they'll die to get through it. So by removing that and creating a clear path for that CO two, it'll actually stick, and we basically canned it, and it's a carbonated cocktail at that point, which is uh, tons oh, of fun. Man. Yeah.
1: So so there's there's a lot that goes into this, obviously. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so is there is there a point at which you think to yourself, oh, this is ready, um, or, or or is it a matter of deadlines? Like, how do you how do you arrive at the point where like, oh, I think we got it, or no, we need we need one more ingredient, and then we might be good.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like cooking, you know, what I mean, it's like you got it you a you get your rhythm, you know, what I mean, you're like, uh, a really great way to put it on a really great way to put it was uh, a lot of people have read the death and company cocktail book, uh, they put out a great one called the cocktail codex as well. Um, they refer to Basically, you balance the cocktail, right? So that's the big thing. It's like a bad cocktail. There's no balance. So Mm. most cocktails, you want the sweetness to be balanced by a bitter. Uh, Sometimes that's going to be bitter. Sometimes it's going to be a citrus for acidity. But an unbalanced cocktail is not a good cocktail. So it's either going to be too bitter or it's going to be too sweet. So you always create that balance of your ingredients, that harmony uh, of the spirit and whatever you're using to kind of create that uh, forward drop or backdrop for that spirit. And then... Uh, As Death & Company says it, once it's balanced and beautiful and harmonious, they season it, right? So you have this beautiful dish that tastes perfectly cooked, tastes great, it's got acidity, it's got all these things, but now you're going to put a little bit of seasoning on there. So like, for for example, this cocktail, it was great. I had the clarified tangerine, I had the mescal, I had the marigold, which added this kind of orange cream creaminess to it. Um, There's a little bit of acidity. And um, I didn't. I was adding citrus to make it more acidic, and I went, "Oh no, this doesn't want that. This wants to be creamy. It wants to be rich." So I said, "I need to season it, though. It's too plain right now." And I went, "Okay, let's put some mole in there." And all of a sudden, our mole really woke it up. It made it an interesting experience, and not just this good-tasting linear cocktail. It made it special. It made you remember it. So that's kind of how I would approach that.
1: <laughs> and and something I really love about your process is that you're mindful of your footprint so you know i've I've been reading up a bit about the zero waste beverage program you've instituted at gracias madre and so you're coming up with all these amazing cocktails like the ones you're talking about and at the same time you're very conscious of how can we make sure we're not you know how can we make sure we're being respectful of our environment and, and you know not just bringing in ethical you know, agave producers, but we're ethical in our own practices here at Gracias Madre. Can you tell us a little bit about the Zero, uh, Zero Waste Beverage Program and how, it, how you have found meaning and value in it?
0: Yeah, you know, it actually, it's, it's something that I've always really cared about. I've gone to seminars where they teach you how to not waste things behind the bar. But the tricky thing is that when you are working on a bar like Gracias Madre, which is doing thousands and thousands of cocktails a day, you know, it's, it's hard because the fact of the matter is, is you don't know how many people are going to walk in the door. You don't know what they're going to drink that day. And you don't want to not have what they want, but you also don't want to overproduce because then you're going to find yourself in a waste. So when we reopened after the COVID shutdown, that was my goal was this is the first time we've had the opportunity to start this entire program from the ground up. This is the first time where we don't, we're not walking in with this unlivable amount of momentum, where we 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 can figure it out a little better and also people are being kinder right now people are more understanding if they're out of something you know what i mean That's people are the world is restarting and um yeah so basically what i decided to do was uh at the end of it killed me when we had to shut down the first time because i just found myself like trying to find homes for all these things that were going to go bad it was like tons of fresh citrus and produce and all these things they're all going to go bad and i went i don't know if we're going to open up again in the shutdown of the next day. So if we're gonna prepare, we're gonna make all these things, I wanna make sure essentially what we do is we make sure that we're not gonna waste them. And uh, what so what I ended up doing was making a system where we have our fresh juices and answering the question of, okay, so what are we gonna do with this tomorrow? Like what what are, what is tomorrow if we overproduce, what's a system that we can put into place to make sure that the overproduction isn't seemed as bad, it's just day old juice that we can turn into something else. or um, when we're peeling these limes after we juice with them after we, we have all these lime peels like what are we going to turn these into like we're we're going to make something out of them and we just kept thinking and essentially making a list of things saying like okay cool so we did this and we strained this thing and we have all this pulp left over from our michelada after we strained the michelada mix like what are we going to do with that and just being creative challenging ourselves and coming up with ways to make sure we're not just throwing things away you know everything has a thought so for example Uh, we take our lime juice for our margarita. And we sell so many margaritas that we actually have to have margaritas on tap. And margaritas traditionally shouldn't be on tap because you want it to be shaken and aerated and beautiful and tasty and fresh citrus. And also if a margarita is on tap, there's a large chance that um, you're going to make too much of the margarita on tap. And the next day you're going to have a day old margarita and that's not as good, right? So what we started doing was I take the day old lime juice and we actually take it, with sugar and the peels from the limes from when we, before we juice them. And then a little bit of citric and malic acid, which are the natural acids found in lime. And I actually sous vide it for about an hour and 40 minutes at a very low temperature to release all the oils from the lime peels. And then we crank it up to 145 for a final 20 minutes, which is the lowest, gentlest possible pasteurization point. And we turn it into a lime cordial that will, um, is literally you just take the cordial so you got your sweetener you got your acid we have salt in there we have orange peels we have lime peels and you just combine it with tequila and a little bit of water and it creates a margarita that will be good in your fridge for over a month so that was the fun of that is is um a it's delicious because it doesn't suffer from being uh not shaken it's got a richer mouthfeel um and uh i can sell it to go and you can take it home a six pack of them and you don't have to worry about drinking them all that night So, we do the same thing with our grapefruits. We take our day old grapefruit juice, we take the peels, we take uh, citric and malic acid and a little bit of sugar. We vide it uh, after we clarify it and we force carbonate that into a homemade grapefruit soda, which is then used for our paloma. Also, lasts a month in the fridge and is delicious. So, it's a lot of work. And my bartenders all kind of looked at me like I was crazy for a little bit. But, you know, if you want to put a number on it, which a lot of time restaurants do, we're saving over $8,000 a month on just wasted produce, you know, because our guys aren't gonna if they overproduce lime juice over the weekend and it rains we don't have to worry about the you know 20 gallons of lime juice that we just have to dump down Or face the question do we compromise quality for our guests or do we compromise waste you know i mean it's so we've just been starting from the ground up and as we are building these systems we approach them from a way of already thinking 10 steps ahead it's okay, we're not gonna build this and then figure out what's going wrong. We're gonna build it already knowing what's gonna go wrong. And we're just gonna deal with that now. Um, and it's been really, really cool. Uh, it's been rewarding monetarily. It feels good to talk about to people like you and to share and it and it tastes good. And the bottom line is, is it tastes really good. And that's that's the point, right? So
1: Yeah, and I can attest to it having, I, I told you before we recorded, I got a can of the Purista myself and I had it last night. And one, it tastes great, obviously. Too. I think right now during COVID, when people are, you know, gathering in a park or something, it's the perfect thing where you just have some cans. Everybody gets their own can. It's very safe. You can be socially distant. And it's just nice to have in the fridge for whenever, you know, like let's say you're having dinner and, and uh, you, you have a margarita ready to go from Gracias Madre. How convenient and awesome is that? Um, and it's nice. It's, you know, the cherry on the top is hearing that it, it feeds into an ethical practice where I'm getting what I wanted you guys were not having to waste great ingredients and it seems like a win-win for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's
0: actually, it's been actually really interesting cause my boss will kill me on this one, but it doesn't matter. It's fine. Um, so we're the only restaurant I know that came back from this and with the now money being saved from this waste. Um, instead, I actually just put it back into the product. So, um, I, we were spending, uh, you know, a, 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 a good amount on a quality product for our well tequila. But I went, okay, I'm saving this much more money. We're not wasting these things. I can actually afford to put in an even more ethical tequila than we were currently using. Um, and we successful, we basically, I'm spending 50% more than I was prior on my well tequila. And I'm still making my numbers slap, if you will. You yeah. know, so it's, <laughs> it's it's great, you know? So um, everyone's benefiting and we're finding ways to produce. We're, we're supporting smaller producers that were more affected by these times because the big boys, they're fine. They're going to be fine. You know what I mean? It's, you know, their liquor store sales are up, everyone's up, but the, the small guy that relied on bartenders to hand sell his product because it's a more boutique product, he's hurting it. And he might not be around when this dust settles. So we've actually used the money we're saving on things like that and pumped it back into the process, which is great because it supports the people that we want to support. We want to make sure when this is all over, they're still around. And it also creates a better experience from our guests because that tequila you got in that cocktail is good tequila. It's, yeah. it's quality tequila. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. And I, I admire this circle of paying it forward. And I want to ask you about how you at Gracias Madre, weathered challenges that came your way from the pandemic, in addition to, you know, selling cans of margaritas, what are some of the other things that you had to start considering um, as, as you guys saw these challenges coming in?
0: Yeah. I mean, there was a lot, um, there's a lot of challenges, you know, there was the safety of my staff. Um, there was the safety of our guests. There was uh, like I already said, the ethical standpoint of waste. Um, and also there is the inability to sell, hand sell, you know, it's like, there's a big part of a bartender. I have so many mascals and tequilas in house and most people don't recognize any of them and with the about the ability to actually hand sell those things. Um, we had to be really creative. So when I rebooted, our program from the ground up um so now for the first all, first of all our bartenders don't talk to anybody our bartenders are inside behind the bar and the guests are hundreds of feet away outside on the patio so i immediately went okay so if we're gonna maximize this and we're gonna get the most I'm, i need this to be the most efficient i can't have six bartenders behind the bar that's not ethical right now like i can't that doesn't work i need to endanger we're very safe at work. We wear PPE equipment, masks, the whole shebang, but still the le- less is desirable. You don't want as many people crammed into that space as you can. So what we did is we created this kind of system where we put in where, um, all the prep that's being done is by a bartender and everything is made in a way that it can be executed by basically a single person. So, um, creating systems, cause I can't have a bartender freaking out and handshaking every single cocktail. So using these systems, that don't compromise quality, um, not only make it so a bartender can produce it quickly by themselves, it's basically they they spend all morning making it and then they spend all evening serving it. And then uh it's also can be canned to go, it's also it's great in that regard, but I keep my bartenders far away and safe. Um, I don't have any dirty dishware get brought behind the bar anymore, you know, because to me it's a prep area. A lot of time I've never understood that, you know, it's like you we have a food prep area and everyone's bringing their dirty dishes back there. You know, it just doesn't make sense. So uh, we don't want to do that, which is great. Um, we've been really making uh, education more of a priority because if we can't sell things from outside to people directly, we need to educate everybody make sure everyone in-house is knowledgeable so they can hand sell. Um, and then also I changed the way my menu read. Um, so now when you look at our menu, rather than having these, a lot of cocktail bars, there is a certain fun factor to walk in and go I don't know what any of these ingredients are I'm so lost like this is this it's like you know it's like you look at this like you go into a a fine dining restaurant and they're like ooh, lovage and batarga and all these things you're like those sound fancy I want that but now's not the time for that right so what I did is I changed my menu and rather than having these creatively laid out names and all these things very engaging and fun instead I made every single cocktail on my menu um named after the parent cocktail that it is based on but it's our own spin on it so right margarita paloma negroni old Fashioned, all of those things so a guest looks at the menu they go i know what that is i'm not gonna get this server all up in my grill as i ask a thousand questions it's very apparent what this is um but then when you look at the ingredient list underneath the familiar format you'll notice that it is very much our own take on that familiar thing you know it's uh You know it's not oh i named it this crazy thing you're like oh it's pizza i know what pizza is and then you look and you're like whoa those ingredients look interesting but you already have a jumping off point so it's been lots of just like figuring out what works limiting interaction between guest and and server and bartender and just trying to make sure everyone's safe and everyone has a job and everyone is happy and we're not wasting things you know that's what it's about right now it's about hitting a full reset and finding the things that we Want to learn and take away from this negative experience and make the world a better place when this is over because we spent this time learning how to better ourselves. Yeah,
1: hundred percent. And it's it's so awesome to hear this as somebody who's a fan of Gracias Madre. It's just great to hear that you guys have been considering all these different things, have been building up in this cool way, and finding the silver linings in what's been a otherwise super crazy time. So thank you for you know on behalf of all your fans across the city it, it it's uh it's been really awesome and just even getting a can to go was was sweet it was like i i, I haven't actually myself i haven't dined out actually since the pandemic started i'm just weird that way but oh, well, yeah. it's been nice it's been nice to it's you know weird, have my handful handful of uh handful of favorites like gracias madre and be able to see the cool innovative ways that restaurants like yourself have found to connect with customers. So I I, I think it's awesome and doubly awesome that we found a way to, uh, you know, consider, OK, how can we also make sure we're looking out for the environment? And uh, I think it's fantastic that that you've spearheaded that. And I hope um, other bartenders and beverage directors are keeping an eye out and, and get a chance to listen to this, because I think what you're doing is awesome.
0: Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, I'll make sure and- we, we drop off some some cocktails for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And
1: we'll just, we'll wind down with some fun rapid fire questions. Firstly, yeah, yeah. besides, besides, what was the tequila app you mentioned? The Mezcal app? Ma- uh, matchmaker? Tequila Matchmaker. Tequila yep. Matchmaker. In addition to Tequila Matchmaker, is there another app that you can't live without?
0: Ooh, uh, yeah. The one I've been doing recently is called um, Understanding Mezcal.
1: Okay, really cool. cool.
0: Uh, it's definitely not for the layman but it's really fun because you can kind of do a little research as to the, the book is great there's a book called understanding mescal but this particular app is great because you can type in a mescalero and you can type in a brand and you can actually see what other brands they produce for what other what the history of the mescalero and you start kind of crossing the, It's it's awesome it's really fun because you start to learn a little bit more about these producers and why you might enjoy something and what region it's from and you can look and see, oh, this is distilled twice in copper, or this is distilled in clay, and it's um, it's a really great educational piece. Definitely not for the layman; it's definitely for the Mescal nerd. But um, it yeah. connects, helps connect those dots, <laughs> which is great.
1: I love that. I love that. I feel like there's a lot of that for wine, and I've been I've been fortunate to speak with a couple sommeliers. But it's cool to hear about you know similar similar uh, formats and systems set up for Mescal where somebody could learn about it. Because I feel like. With wine, there's so many different schools and classes you could take, and it's nice to hear about. Oh, you can do you can do awesome classes and awesome learning with tequila and mezcal as well.
0: That's mm-hmm. really nice. Uh, being someone yeah. like in my field because I'm I'm 31, I've been doing this for a while, and I can still be the top in my field, and I can make a mezcal book and not feel like I'm wasting my time. You know what I yeah. mean? It's everyone's learning together, which is awesome.
1: Yeah, and uh, who would you like to play you in a movie about your life?
0: Um, play me in a movie about my life oh man I have no idea uh huh jeez I guess they have to look like me right because I know tons of actors I love but if I'm you like... like if you'd like
1: anything can be done with prosthetics and hair and makeup these days
0: oh, yeah, that's true that's true oh man well I guess I would just have to choose bill Murray then I'm down <laughs> <laughs> amazing
1: <laughs> if you could uh if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability what would it be
0: Oh, man. Skill or ability? Like supernatural skill or more realistic skill? Yeah, it could be skill. a
1: superpower. Why not?
0: Oh, man. That's tough. Mm. I think I would just want to be really good at things very quickly. I have a lot of interests, <laughs> and I see them through all the way. Like, all the way. Like, if, I'm, if I start doing something, I just go for it. I would just, like, love the ability to increase the rate of which I am. <laughs> getting better at these various skills. Cause that would be incredible. <laughs> yeah. Just
1: You're a completionist. Learn.
0: Yeah, totally. Just be able to learn more quickly <laughs> and feel, feel more confident quickly, which is yeah, takes years. And I think the journey is important, but that would be <laughs> exhilarating. <Yeah. laughs>
1: and uh, where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit?
0: Uh, shoot. So many places. Uh, Japan's a big one for me. Um, actually just got a consulting gig over there. I was supposed to be opening a bar in Okinawa at the beginning of all this. And then because of all the travel restrictions, obviously was not able to, um, so I'm, I'm really excited to go there and see, um, my friend's bar that I've been kind of helping with over Skype and zoom. And then, uh, I also just got another gig opening a bar in Kyoto, which I'm really excited about. So, um, I'm really excited to go to Japan because, um, as a, as a, as you just said, like I'm a bit of a completionist and a perfectionist. So. Uh, to go to a society where it's there's so much perfection and so much um i love the japanese obsession uh over everything they're doing and i'm incredibly inspired to go see that in person
1: you'll be in good company with fellow completionists for sure (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) and um we have a we have a spotify playlist where we ask our guests to contribute a song that they're jamming to so if you could contribute one song now that you're jamming to what would that be
0: Oh man, that's a tough one. I'm a massive metalhead, so I, I feel bad recommending music most <laughs> of the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me see. What have I been listening to recently? Um, you know, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do "Return of the Giant Hogweed" by Genesis. I love All right. That song. It's going on the that playlist. <laughs> yeah. That's it's yeah. like pre pre eighties Genesis when they were still like a prog rock band, very groovy and weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> solid. Very solid.
1: Yeah. All right. And uh, lastly, where can people find your work, follow you on social media, check out your cocktails? Where can they do all that?
0: Yeah. uh, So my Instagram is beer ghost, beer, like the beverage, ghost, like the spooky thing. Uh, I'm mainly posting cocktails and things like that. But ever since COVID has started, uh, I was, I still do a lot of cocktail content, but for some reason I felt like the world needs some laughter. So I started making a bunch of cocktail memes that are very niche. So you might have to dig through those a bit, but, uh, that's been really fun <laughs> really fun um, and then yeah as far as my work goes um, we, not only do I do a lot of cocktail pop-ups so you can find out about those on my Instagram uh, safe pop-ups at this time the delivery-based pop-ups things like that um, I have obviously gracias madre you can order uh, cocktails to go almost every cocktail actually every cocktail on our menu is available to go so you can uh, take that home and experience that which is really really fun and then other than that, yeah, just uh, keep your ear to the cocktail scene. I'm always trying to do fun stuff and fun things. I uh, had the opportunity to be on a ton of podcasts that are um, have very different voices. So I appreciate being able to do this, which is great because, yeah, it's uh, it's a really fun experience for me. So, yeah, just keep your ear to the ground. I'm constantly doing things. So.
1: <laughs> awesome, awesome. And if anyone's curious about the pod, you can check us out at hdydpod.com or Instagram at hdydpod Max, thank you so much. I, I look forward to having my next cocktail from you. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll make sure we get some your way. And uh, when things settle down and you're venturing back out into the world, let me know and we'll give you a proper mezcal proper lesson.
1: Oh, that'd be awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you again. <laughs> and until uh, next time.
0: Yep, sounds good.